With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Dr. Christopher Hall Show. Uh, I'm excited to welcome the host, Dr. Christopher Hall, Nobel Prize nominated doctor, best-selling author, and much more. Dr. Hall, Hall, Howard, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. Well, you know, I'm doing great. You know, I'm really excited about our guest because I know this is a gentleman who has uh, committed uh, his life to uh, help change other people's lives. And Talking about healthcare is very important today. So, yeah, very excited about our guest today. And who is our guest? Well, no problem. Well, you know what? It's my pleasure. I'm happy uh, to introduce uh, Alabama a Democratic uh, Senator uh, representing uh, District 24. Again, uh, in between 2002 and 2005, he was a member of the Alabama House of Representatives. Um, Currently offers uh, minority leader in the Alabama State Senate uh, since 2019. I'd like to welcome to the show uh, Senator Bobby Singleton. Welcome to the show, Senator. Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate you all having me on today. Thank you. All right. Great. Go ahead, um, Dr. Hall. I know you have a bunch of questions. Well, no. Well, no uh, what I was going to say is I definitely want to talk to the Senator uh, today about health care here in the Black Belt where I work. But I want him to tell just a little bit quickly about his life, where he went to school, uh, and kind of where he's from. Well, my name is Bobby Singleton, and I'm from Greensboro, Alabama, which is in rural southwest Alabama. I was born and raised here. Uh, I uh, went to high school here also, and I matriculated to my higher education at Alabama State University in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, thereafter, I attended uh, Miles College uh, School of Law. and uh, I worked with a community action agency developing water systems in rural communities for about 13 years. And then I moved back to Greensboro, Alabama, just to uh, deal with some of the uh, systemic problems that we were having back in my hometown. So I'm here dedicated back to home, trying to help my people evolve and, and, and move to a higher level. That's fabulous. And awesome. to be able to be back home, how, how does that feel for you through your journey to be here to help the community? It, it, is, it, it, is, an, it is an awesome uh, experience. And, you know, it's a humbling experience because, you know, the people that I'm trying to save, the people that I'm looking at every day uh, are, are family members, the people that I grew up with, people that, families that I know, because my hometown is a very small community. And, um, you know, a lot of talent comes through here and a lot of talent leaves. So when you have a drain of talent that is continuing to leave, it's going to continue to leave a systemic line of poverty, you know? So therefore somebody has to stay back and try to help who has some knowledge or have experience and seen the world and want to do something different, has the education level to try to make it work. So I never really wanted to be a politician. I've always uh, called myself a servant. And so I never wanted to run for office until people started drafting me to, to get into politics. And therefore, you know, my community service work evolved into a whole political scene from the city council in, in 2000. I stayed there from 2000 to 2002, then went to the House of Representatives in 2002, and I stayed there for two years. From 2002 to 2004, there was a special election in 2004-05. Then I went to the Senate, and I've been in the Senate now for the last 16, 17 years. Very, very impressive. Very, very impressive. And, uh, you know, Senator Singleton, uh, you know, you've committed your, your life in, in, in 
politics and law to, to change these disparities. And, and, you know, I've been a doctor, you know, more than 23 years and worked all over the South, Mississippi and Tennessee and Tennessee and Alabama. And, and again, now working here in the Black Belt, actually here in Utah, Alabama, it's a very, very humbling experience. And, um, and so, you know, my, my goal in general is to, is to, is to, uh, uh, help people who are undeserved. I've done that for many, many years. Um, but we have some some major issues uh, in the black belt uh, with healthcare. And what do you think? I mean, I can certainly go and list some things, but do you want to make any comments in regards to that? And and, and maybe what uh, what the state of Alabama uh, is trying to do? Well, healthcare has been one of my passions. You know. Uh, people always, you know, Alabama and other states are now putting a bunch of emphasis on workforce. But my thing is, you don't have a healthy workforce, then you don't have a, a healthy employee. And so, uh, I, you know, we, as you work over in, in Greene County and Utah, Alabama, a small rural uh, community hospital there, uh, just like I live here in Hale County, which is next door, about 20 miles away, which has another small rural community uh, hospital. And so what we've seen evolve in the last 15 years is some of our rural community hospitals has been closing down. So my effort has been trying to keep those hospitals open by whatever means we can, by making sure that we can direct resources in, um, and, and also trying to deal with policy that, has, that could help those hospitals stay open. We are, you know, one of the bigger things now we've been, as, as a Democratic caucus, been pushing the expansion of Medicaid in the state of Alabama. And because we are in a, what we call a quote unquote red state with uh, Republicans with a supermajority here in this state, none wanted to do what they call Obamacare. And so because it's Obamacare, no one wanted to uh, come on board uh, and have all the excuses has been about cost and what it would cost the state to do it. And not necessarily talking about what, what effects that does have when people cannot have access to, to affordable and reasonable health care. And uh, so that's one of my biggest things that I've been fighting here is to deal with industry and jobs uh, and health care issues. Um, one of the other things that we've been trying to do is, is to try to put in telemedicine in some of these rural communities where hospitals has closed down uh, community health centers has been there for us to make sure that we have adequate health care. Uh, and, and for some of our people, doctor, as you know, uh, some of the first line has been our local health department has been the first line uh, of prevention for a lot of our people because people don't have primary doctors. We don't have OBGYNs in this area. You know, infant mortality rate is high. Uh, all of those problems are systemic in these areas and it's a lot to address uh, from a policy standpoint, in, in a in a super uh, majority uh, Democratic, I mean super majority Republican area, but we still try to fight the good fight. Very true. Very very true. Very very true. And 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 again, I'm right there on the front lines. And some of the things you spoke about, you talked about. You know, there's 24 different counties here in the Black Belt. 17 of those counties. Uh, have fewer than what we're looking for so far is the number of hospitals uh, uh, per uh, 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 per thousand people. I mean, hospital beds rather. You know, typically right. about the average is 3.9 hospital beds per thousand people, and 17 of these counties uh, fall below that average. And what we see, as you spoke of, were premature deaths. Uh, we see where people are, you know, have to actually go two hours away from where they're living to be in the actual hospital. Personally, myself, I've had to take care of patients uh, here with gunshot wounds, even to the face, uh, with uh, sometimes inadequate uh, medications. And, uh, um, and so these are some of the systemic problems, I think, that would have been improved, would have been um, uh, remedied if we would have had more um, support. Of uh, our expansion of Medicaid in this area, uh, even from the governor, and um, and so speak on that. Yeah, you're right. You know, so we we had a, we had an economic uh, study done on on what would uh, Medicaid expansion do for the state, 
And at the time when a, a Medicaid expansion first came out around, you know, 07, 08, when we were looking at it, uh, it was a $20 billion acquisition to the state of Alabama. You know, and it was only going to cost us a, a, a couple of uh, uh, hundred millions of dollars to get started. And we could have done that, but we, the return on it was going to be over, over $20 billion coming back into the state. And so the state of Alabama just decided to be one of those states to say no. And what was so ironic about that, uh, doctor, uh, is that we had a doctor, a physician, who was the governor of the state of Alabama at that time. And Dr. Well, Bentley. That, Dr. Bentley. And we know what his demise ended up being. But at the end of the day, uh, that was so shocking to me that, that he would not step up. The hospital association would not step up at that time. The medical association would not step up at that time. They were all like crickets and standing on the sideline while they would tell us that they knew that it was the best thing for the state, but no one would voice their opinion. Because as you know, the hospital association, the nursing home association, basically run the medical, the medical association here in the state of Alabama. Let's just call it like it is, okay? Because exactly. of their, their involvement and the use taxes that they put back into the hospital just to be able to get the returns out that they get. And so, you know, we're receiving a lot of federal dollars right now during the COVID, and our nursing homes, our hospitals, you know, has received billions of dollars in this time, but we still don't want to expand Medicaid. I think that if we're going to have a shot, this year is going to be our best shot to expand Medicaid. We have talked to Governor Ivy. Governor Ivy has never told us that she didn't want to do Medicaid expansion. She just always stalled us based on the dollar amount. And so I know it's more politics than it was actual policy with her. And now that she's a lame duck governor, that we are looking to try to push something very aggressive with her. And, and I think that we may come up with something. And, and as I told them, Doc, you know, you can call it Obamacare, and I don't care if you call it K-Care. I don't care what you call right. it. As long as we get something that'll give those <laughs> Alabamians. And let me make this point. While Alabama decided that we didn't want to expand Medicaid, we have already expanded Medicaid in this state. Because pre-pandemic, there was a million people on Alabama roll for Medicaid. When the, when the pandemic started, and now we're looking at post-pandemic right now, and I I'm sorry, it's not post-pandemic because the pandemic is still here. You know, Corona will still be with us. But at the end of the day, let's use the word post-pandemic. At the end of, because of post-pandemic, we are 1.3 million people on our road. So we expanded anyway. And we're doing that at the cost of our own dollars here in the state of Alabama. And there's no federal dollars that are helping us with that. And now, because CMS is now pulling back that 6.7% that they gave us uh, on an expansion on our waiver list, we are now coming off that waiver, and now we're going to have to roll 300,000 people off of our Medicaid, and that is what we're doing right now. And one of the first things that they're talking about rolling off at this point is telehealth. And telehealth mm -hmm. is one of the only things that some of these rural people are going to have to be able to make an audible call to a doctor oh. to be able to get something done because there's no hospitals around, no wow. emergency rooms. Oh, Senator, and so Senator. that's the fight that I got right now as a letter just came out this week that Medicaid is talking about rolling back on audible telehealth. And that oh, is please. something that we're going to have to fight for in this legislative session. So the lack Definitely. of education in the rural areas is such a horrible situation. How can we change things? How can we change things so that there's going to be accessible health care for everyone? We don't hear this. You know, now we can everyone can have health care insurance, but that doesn't mean if you can get health care insurance that you're going to have access to health care. No, it doesn't. Uh, but you know, we 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 have allowed politics to play uh into this thing over people's lives. It's just the same thing that we saw as the pandemic. 
People didn't want to take the virus. People didn't want to do this. They didn't want regulations. They didn't want no one telling them to wear a mask. It's the same thing. And so uh, with that whole concept that's out there, uh, people bought into the fact that they would be okay. And it's interesting that when I see some of these same so-called conservatives, uh, poor white folk that are out here who say that they want the affordable health care, but they don't want that Obamacare. So that let me know that there's a lot of ignorance out here that people need to be educated on because Obamacare and an Affordable Health Care Act is the same thing in one. It's the same thing. So obviously, they're satisfied with saying that they're okay with the Affordable Health Care Act, but when you break it down and call it Obamacare, then they don't want that Obamacare. So it becomes just a race-based kind of thing to, against a policy because a, the first black president of the United States implemented this across the board. I'm just calling it like it is. Well, and that's what we need. We need people to be truthful and honest. Personally, as a doctor, I'm tired of seeing the patients coming too late when the stroke has already engulfed them. I'm tired of seeing uh, not being able to get uh, people who are hardworking people. You know, they may, uh, you know, spend their life working on the farm or in, in rural areas, but they're hardworking, good Americans like anyone else. We need the expansion of Medicaid for these individuals to, uh, to uh, support good health, healthy lives, and personally as a doctor, I'm tired of seeing politicians step in uh, and, and, and really, instead of looking out for the health care of their populace, uh, uh, looking at uh, a political interest. So, wow. You're absolutely right. You know, there are a lot of my colleagues who will sit there with me and say, man, you know you're right. We do need that. But then when the group think comes together, they all get into group think. Then when someone questions it, well, if I come out with that position, then they're going to vote me out of office. People are more concerned about holding status in these communities than they are about trying to make sure that we have a healthy population. And as you know, Alabama continues to rank uh, number one out of our 50 states in the most unhealthy state in the nation. But yet and still, we, wanna, we don't want to do what it takes to get our state in line with a healthy nation. And that is sad. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we have great football certainly down here, and we put a lot of emphasis on that. Well, you know, and that's great. And we all enjoy that, you know, as uh, Alabamians. But we need to also put that same effort in the healthcare of our children and of our families so that we can maintain healthy. Wow. I agree. Oh my goodness. Where, uh, Senator, where's the best place people can find information on you or at least on visit, finding info on you, especially if in the Alabama area? Well, you know, I'm not a big social media guy. I'm just one of those people who just like the work, man. You know, to get down here in the in, in, in the weeds and, and make it work. You know, I'm like this weekend, I'm I'm out uh cooking to raise money, you know, for boys and girls clubs. Uh I got STEM camps that I'm running. Uh and people always ask me, so man, you need to be more social media savvy. That kind of stuff doesn't just get with me. So I don't have like a website that people can really just go to. I just like doing the work, man. You know, this Saturday, I'm opening up a third grade reading program where I got retired teachers coming in and teaching babies how to read because we have a third grade reading program that say that every child can't read by third grade, going to be left behind. We're also with the math. So we're going to be opening that up this Saturday. So we do Saturday Academy. We're trying to train coders in this area, uh, trying to get a, try to deal with a whole different workforce. So those are the kind of things that I'm doing on the ground, you know, and again, trying to fight for health care. But at the end of the day, I'll be willing to give people my cell number. You can call me or my email address is dsingle362 at gmail.com or my cell phone number is 334-507-5562. I don't have a particular website that anyone could go to and just see anything because I don't, I don't care about that. I just want to do the work. 
That's tremendous. And uh, Dr. Hall, summarize uh, the senator, please. Wow, with no problem. Well, there we have it. A warrior, a true fighter from Greensboro, Alabama. Um, I had the honor to meet uh, Senator Singleton one day. Uh, he came to the hospital and uh, welcomed me here to this area as a doctor. So, wow, I really want to uh, collaborate with and him. And I'll be back. And I'll be back. <laughs> awesome. Yes, sir. And so we're very excited that uh, Senator Bobby Singleton was on the show today. All right, guys. Appreciate it, guys. All right, that was the Dr. Christopher Hall Show, simulcast with the Neil Haley Show. Take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect and Caregiver Day Celebrity Segment. And also, I have another co-host. So we're going to first introduce to the show David Hollenbach. David, thanks for stopping by. He's one of my co-hosts. I've never had two co-hosts. I love this. This is a different thing. David, thanks for stopping by. You probably by. never had two Daves either. No, I never had two Daves at the same time either. <laughs> so thanks, David, uh, for stopping by, man. Yeah, thanks. I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation with, with Garnet. Uh, I'm excited for the conversation as well. And I also want to welcome caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? And this is what I, it reminds me of Clubhouse today. We feel like uh -huh. we're, <clears throat> and we just decided we're all going to interview people and all these <laughs> things. So let's Doing go. Great. Our guest is uh, Garnet Grimm. He's a drummer of the Savoy Brown Band. How are you? And thanks for stopping by, Garnet. Oh, thanks for having me. How's everybody doing? Wow. Fantastic. And you're going to, this is a fun one. Let's just jump into your career. Did you always want to be a musician? Kind of let's jump right there first. Well, yeah, I really did. Um, <laughs> my dad, my dad is uh, also a drummer and he is uh, probably, you know, my earliest influence. So there were always uh, drums and instruments and music all around the house, records, on the living room floor to trip over. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I did always want to be a musician, specifically a drummer. So, yeah. And I know the jokes. Some people will say drummers are not really musicians, but. <laughs> well, I used to be a drummer. So my first question, obviously, is who was your favorite drummer? Who was your drummer mentor who decided, man, that's what I want to do? I, mean, I don't know how far back you go. That is a, you're into swing I, or whatever. I, yeah, that's always a tough question question because <clears throat> I never I can't answer just one I have so many influences <laughs> but uh, but I can say that I was you know uh, early early on I, I was I was a young kid when the Beatles first came out so so of course you know Ringo was someone I looked up to and later as time went on all those great bands in the 60s and 70s I have to say probably one of the biggest ones for me in that era would have been John Bonham. He, he just, you know, he was just such a monster musician and uh, drummer and what, what a great player, very creative behind the kit. And uh, so that was probably one of my biggest from that era. But I have to say, I, I like to look, go back and listen to, uh, I was a big, I was also a fan of a lot of the jazz drummers. Um, Growing up, uh, one of my one of my biggest uh, in you know guys I used to look at was this guy named Louis Belson, who was really a um, a big band era right. drummer. But uh, you know he he was very uh, creative, very influential. Uh, probably the first guy that I know of anyway that was using the double basses, double bass drummer, and uh. you know. That became a big thing as in the rock and roll world, right? So yeah. I think he was the first one to do that. <clears throat> go ahead, David. One of the Daves just jump on, and I'll go to the next question after that. All right. Well, you're you're promoting your newest album, Blues All Around. Uh, what was the biggest influence for this this new album? Um. Well, Kim, I have to say, Kim was is the was always. Tim Simmons was always the the uh, premier songwriter. So um, uh, I think that Kim was not feeling well. He was dealing with uh, with a with an illness that would eventually take his life. So um, there was a little bit of pressure, a little bit of um, uh, you know he wanted to get this one out. So. Um, uh, the influence, I think, 
he had some songs and demos from years past that hadn't quite made it. Um, and I think he was reflecting a little bit on his life and career. And uh, some of those songs uh, you will reckon, you know, you will know when you listen to them that um, I think they're kind of autobiographical. You know, California Days Gone By is one I'm thinking of immediately. Talks about a, a band, uh, presumably Savoy Brown, hanging out in California, Sunset Strip in the 1960s. So I think that uh, I think there was a little bit of. Um, you know, a little bit of, uh, of he really wanted to get this out. Uh, so uh, I think that was the biggest push was his, you know, might have been his illness that he wanted to get it out. You know, Yeah, for those listening that might not know how extensive the history of Foy Brown is, I mean, your band really helped create that that British uh blues rock movement yeah, absolutely kim kim was one of the pioneers for sure of that um he he grew up really loving the blues and also uh he went, he came of age at a really good time i mean uh, for for rock and roll uh, and blues uh rock and roll that was influenced by blues what i mean is uh, you know, I know he saw the Rolling Stones early on in London. Uh, of course, the Beatles were, were a big thing already. But there was a lot of uh, movement towards, you know, there was a lot of movement with the with the blues influence into rock and roll. And uh, he was in, a, in on the cutting edge of it. He was a little bit younger than, say, Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, maybe by four or five years, a little bit younger. But um still uh really in that group uh I, I would call them contemporaries you know and um yeah he definitely helped uh initialize that that sound you know in fact the savoy brown first was called the savoy brown blues band but it kind of morphed after a while and uh, uh they dropped the blues band part and uh, it was more of a became more of a rock and roll uh, band uh, with a blues influence, i.e. that, you know, blues rock. <laughs> yeah. So where do you think the, where do you see the, talking about the history of blues, where do we see the blues going in, 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 the, in the 21st century? Well, you know, if you look at a lot of the players that are out there now, um, they're very reflective of kind of the rock and roll. There's a little bit of a rock edge. So, um, but there's a wide variety when I say that, I'm generally speaking, because there's a wide variety of players. I mean, you have acoustic players and country blues. There's all these little tiny subgenres that pop up. But, um, you know, Joe Bonamassa, for example, is probably the biggest uh, one out there right now. And he's, you know, he leans a little bit on the rock side of the blues. So where do I see it going? I don't know. I It's very cyclical. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, if you remember maybe in the 1990s, there was a real big blues revival in, around the country and, and really worldwide. And it seemed like everybody wanted to be a harmonica player or a guitar player, you know. So uh, and a lot of bands were playing the Chicago style blues, which involved a lot of harmonica. Um, so, um, you know, I hope it it's a very durable music because it's kind of the foundation for a lot of genres. You know, if you can country rock and roll, of course, uh, uh, even, even funk and some of those things really have a blues roots uh, kind of foundation. So um, where do I see it going? I, I hope it continues to grow. Um, I hope it comes around. I hope we have a big, fantastic, blues revival in, in the next, you know, 10 years or something, because I, I, you really need, if you, you know, in the 90s, for example, 80s and 90s, Stevie Ray Vaughan, there, there's usually some artist that comes around and all of a sudden gives it a shot in the arm. And in that period, I think, was Stevie Ray Vaughan really gave it a shot in the arm back in the 80s and, uh, and into the 90s. So, uh, maybe hopefully we'll see that again. Some young kid will come along and boom, you know, he'll have some, 
some blues influenced kind of groove that he's playing and people will jump on board and you know they'll want to do it again so how did you first meet kim simmons and uh what what kind of got the band started and did you think it would be <laughs> what it is today yeah well uh first of all i was in the last incarnation of the band there's so many kim there was a there was quite a few people that came before me so uh, i'm a little humbled uh, when i'm here talking to you because there's a lot of people that could be talking to you that went on to bigger and better you know fame are you the third drummer that they they oh, have no i don't know which number <laughs> i am but i will say that pat DeSalvo and i uh i think we formed the longest running rhythm section bass and uh, drummers that, that the band's ever had. So I was with Kim for about 14 years. Um, but the band goes all the way back to the sixties. Kim was about 15 when he started the band and he kept it going for almost six decades. So, uh, but some of the people you may know that are coming in and out of this band, uh, was, um, you know, talking about drummers. One was, uh, Bill Bruford had a cup of coffee with with the band, went on to form, you know, Yes, and um, uh, Dave uh, Preverett and Roger Earl and Tony Stevens broke away to form Foghat. Um, so uh, uh, Dave Walker was in uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac for a short time and Black Sabbath. So... So there's a, a Paul Raymond for a band called UFO. So so he really, Kim really, I don't know that he planned on doing this, but he really helped launch quite a few careers along the way. And um, uh, he was, you know, he never became, uh, the band and Kim never became quite a household name, but they were always in that underground uh, kind of influenced a lot of people. Um, Government Mule, just their last record, I think they released last year, did Street Corner Talking, which is a song that Kim wrote many years ago. Uh, the band Great White covered some songs. Um, David Lee Roth covered some songs. Uh, Richie Sambora covered some songs that were Savoy Brown. So uh, you can see there's a lot of people that he influenced. So, yeah. Wow. It's a uh, very, very interesting uh, stuff. So the new album, all the different things, are you guys going to go on tour soon? Well, no, we can't. Kim passed away in, in uh, December. I'm sorry. So uh, the record came out in February. So, um uh, as far as, you know, some people have asked about tribute shows, um, stuff like that. I always, I'm, I'm, I'm saying my standard answer is it's a little too early uh, to talk about that. I would love to do grieving. that. I would love to do that, but um, hopefully we can. But uh, right now they're kind of just focused on trying to get the record promoted and um, the new recording and see how it does. It's been doing very well, so. Um, you know, that's exciting, but unfortunately, no, we can't, we can't tour with this one. So, uh, that's why we're, we're out pounding the streets, the, the, the digital pavement, so to speak with, uh, guys like your shows and, you know, a lot of interviews and podcasts, as many as we can talk to just to say, Hey, this thing is out there and please buy it. You know? All right. How old was Kim? Uh, 75 he was yeah 75 all right so dave has a question caregiver dave why he's caregiver dave and then uh we might have david have a question too before we finish go ahead dave well garnet uh you know we're all getting old we've got some gray hair in our beards and, and <laughs> uh, one thing that's for certain we're either going to become a caregiver or we're going to be a caregiver to somebody and it's inevitable. And I, I had to become a caregiver to my wife 25 years ago. She had a stroke, lost her speech, paralyzed on one side. Oh. And uh, I just thought it was going to be a speed bump, you know, and she'd be all better. But I've been dealing with this for like 27 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, talk about long-term caregiving. You know, I made a lot of mistakes. And I I started caregiverdave.com. I've, I've been on uh, hosts of TV shows, I think over 57. 
and I'm speaking all across the country and I've got a podcast. Now I'm doing uh, caregiver wellness retreats in Acapulco to help caregivers stay alive. 30% of them die before their loved ones do. It's the most stressful job there is right up there with, you know, disarming nuclear bombs and stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. The stress kills them. Uh, how has caregiving touched your life? Wow. It is so amazing you just asked me that question because my <laughs> my dad is right here with me downstairs because wow. uh, my dad You're a caregiver uh, yeah my dad took a bad fall a few weeks ago and he was in the hospital and uh i they released him to me and uh because uh, he <clears throat> absolutely wanted to go home and um uh, you know, he, he's doing better. Uh, I'm working with him every day. We just got back from a nice long walk, actually. It takes him a little while, but, uh, he's getting stronger every day, but it's so amazing that, uh, that you're asking this question because I am finding out how incredibly difficult it is to yeah. be a caregiver. Yeah. You know, Amen to that. That's, that's why I host these retreats in Acapulco. I should send it to you. You might need a vacation. Oh man, please do. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Wow. How That's long incredible. have you been doing this? How, when did your father fall? Oh, it was, it's only been about a month, you know, oh. but, uh, but he's been here living with me for this, uh, since he's been yeah. out of the hospital and, uh, oh you know, I'm getting, I'm learning every day that, uh, you know how hard it is for people yeah. to have to do this uh, you should read know. my book it will help it's called Absolutely. it's my life too how to thrive and survive as a caregiver wow um, yeah i'd love to hear about more about it yeah okay so i will connect we'll you connect. guys uh, yeah. there and you can talk more a uh, best place to find information on the, the album and stuff is go where Where's the best place? Oh, yeah best place to go please uh everybody go to savoybrown.com uh, there you'll see uh, a history of the band, a discography. Uh, you'll see uh, a whole bunch of stuff there, merchandise. And of course, uh, Kim, besides being a creative uh, songwriter and guitar player, he was also an artist. So you'll see some of his uh, paintings there. And, and yeah, so that's SavoyBrown.com. All right. Thanks again. Appreciate it, guys. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. I'm excited first to welcome the program, Caregiver Dave and Sandy. Dave, how are you, man? What's going on? I'm doing great. Enjoying the L.A. rain. Uh, it's never stopped raining for two months now, and uh, never thought I'd ever see that in 44 years that I've been here. Oh, my goodness. Go figure well, the weather and everything. And our guest today is Sarah Syed. And her and she is the star of his only son. Sarah, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very good. And yes, I just came from LA. It was unreal, Dave. I I, I hear you. Okay, so <laughs> you came from LA. So tell us the experience again, and specifically that not now you're you're back. Where are you right now, Sarah? Um, I'm sorry. I, where are you now? Where where are you located right now? Where oh, you? right now I'm in LA. I, okay. I, yes, I, I was born in Tehran. I moved to London for about 15 years, and then I came to Cambridge to study, and I'm in L.A. now. So tell me about uh, His Only Son. Give us the premise of it. Well, uh, His Only Son is this, for me, I would I would say, personally, it was like a beautiful spiritual journey for me as an actor as an artist but also I feel like it's a very important story told through um the narrative of a, of a biblical narrative of these characters who for for the longest time for a lot of us have been these like superhero distant um these these grand characters that we we couldn't really relate to but I've always obviously loved the story and I I had I had I had done it even in school um as part of our theater group Group. But the beauty of the film, I, I believe, is this um, is the story of Abraham um, and how he and his devotion to God and, and his commitment to his vocation and his search for truth. And throughout this journey, he's told that he needs to prove himself. He needs to show that he's um, he's all in. And so he's asked to um, sacrifice his only son. Who had um, with who he who who he conceived with with Sarah, they had um, for years and years been trying, 
And this this journey of having having Isaac was cumbersome to say the least, and it ended up and ended up being his biggest sacrifice. And so I don't want to tell you. I mean, I know everyone knows the story, but the beauty of the film is that at every during every frame throughout the entirety of the journey, you still question whether this is going to happen and whether he's going to do it. Um, and I and I think the dynamic between Abraham and Sarah, Sarah is just one of um, true love and commitment and devotion to one another uh, that everyone can relate to and the struggles of 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 uh, being part of a relationship and having have to strive through the the complexities and challenges of life. Sarah, is this a movie that Christians will enjoy, that Muslims will enjoy, that Jews will enjoy? Absolutely. I mean, I I was I was personally I was born um Muslim. I I grew up in a society where I felt like in a lot of ways that religion didn't um uh, and uh, it was very oppressive for me. And I believe that God and religion has to free you uh, in order to in order for you to be of service to causes greater than yourself. Yeah. And 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 for me I believe this this film is a beautiful journey whether you're a believer or non-believer. You you find this sense of um, um, uh, spiritual awakening, but also it feels like it's it's an invitation to to right. come and observe and be a part of it. In Farsi, we um, we uh, the word for God is Khoda, which is short for Bechoda, which means come to oneself, come to yourself. And I think this is this this film is a beautiful homage to that. Wow. No, definitely. So talking about the filming of the film, we talked about the premise. It had to have been a challenge, right? It's not the oh my God. filming to try to really depict that time period, to have the yeah. right background, all that. So explain that. Yeah, I mean, David, Roman, everyone on the team, everyone in the crew, uh, they did such a beautiful job. I watched the film for the first time yesterday. Uh, sadly, I missed the premiere because I was on a, on another shoot. Um, I couldn't believe my eyes. I, I was, I, I mean, I knew what they were capable of, but to 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 go back to how we had to do it in the heat of the desert with the minimum bare minimum obviously in terms of just budget it was a it was a it was a low budget film um it was such a labor of love from the get-go everyone had put so much soul and love into it that we knew it was going to be something special but i believe in a lot of ways and i i mean i i don't know if i'm biased because of the fact that i have so much love for the team but um <clears throat> It truly feels like watching a masterpiece. It's so sensual. It's so authentic. Every frame is just so um, important. It's the, there's no fluff. And even though it's a beautiful long journey, it never feels boring. Um, but yeah, it was it was a bit of a struggle. I have so many funny memories. I mean, we were I had to be aged, and so we had prosthetics on my face and jowls and what have you. And and David had lots of hair on his face and it had to be glued on and i remember in the in the, in the deep heat of the desert we would like every time we would embrace or come close or kiss each other on the face um my javel would be stuck on his face and his beard on mine and we were in the middle of a like an intense emotional scene that had to be redone all over again oh, um yeah it was but it was it was just so fun it was just so wonderful Sarah, I, I'm a Christian. I love the story. I've read it so many times. The yes. biblical account. Um, many films have been made about this part of of the Bible, but um, how is yours different? I mean, uh, are you? Is it strictly the biblical account? Have you taken creative license? I mean, how is it different from from what's out there? I think I and I think I, I have also watched uh, there was a film that I was absolutely truly in love with, even though and now when I think about it, it's it, 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 it's it's historical, I think, for me. When I first I wasn't even let me tell you the story, actually, when I um, I wasn't supposed to audition for the film, I went to this massive sort of structure where they were casting um, different films. It's a very well-known one in LA. Um, and I just saw the script on, on the wall and the sides. And as you said, this is a beautiful story. Um, it's very nostalgic for me personally, and I loved it. I've loved it. Uh, it's one of those very, as you said, um, biblical, favorite biblical stories of mine. And I, 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 I got up looked at the sides and I was reading it and Roman, our producer, opened the door and he was like, 
um, are you here to audition? I was like, no. And he was like, what's your name? I said, Sarah. And he's like, oh, great. We're auditioning for Sarah. Come in. Uh, and that, that the rest is history. It, it was just pure serendipity from the get-go. The beauty of this, the way this story is being told, for me, um, really stems from David's devotion to getting the facts historically right, but also his in-depth research uh, with respect to scripture, with with respect to authenticity of the characters, of its historical value. And, and for me, I knew I was in safe hands. We would be depicting something that is truthful, relatable, honest, and and I think as artists, we owe it to the society to make sure that they can relate to these characters and they're not these grand, you know, these superheroes that are very distant. Uh, I think that the beauty of this story is that everyone can see a part of themselves in Abraham and Sarah and their relationship and, and true, other to characters. The customs and traditions of the time as well. Absolutely. While, as you said, remaining true to the customs and the traditions That's of great. the time. Can't yeah. wait to see it. Now, oh, my I, question I to, to, to you, see. Sarah, is Angel Studios, what, how's the, how are they different than other studios? I mean, um, it's the people. It really is about the people. I, I, yesterday I was like, it's, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just like uh, too emotional and going through this whirlwind right now. But I lit literally looked at some, uh, Judy and Kelly and all the other members that I had seen through Angel Studios and Jen Jeremy. And I was like, what are you, what are you guys? What are you made of? Why are you so good? Why are you so wonderful? I couldn't even, and I, and I believe the reason why Angel Studios is so successful and has managed to um, spearhead so many wonderful projects is because the people are all about the project and they take care of their talent. They take care of their crew. They're very respectful. And the stories are important to them because it means that it will change something in the society. It would, it would provoke people to be thoughtful, to be more, to have hope and be resilient towards this. And I think just, just that kind of a strategy and not it being about profit necessarily in the beginning. Uh, I know obviously it's a, it's ultimately a business that has to go around but just the, the the from from the inception of every project it's about the substance it's about the people and it's about what they can give back to the world and i think that's what makes angel Studios so special at least for me all right so sarah basically um dave has another question after asking one more question where can we find the film and stuff is it in theaters yet when is it coming out it is it is in 2000 theaters um i, I guess worldwide it's been translated in 15 different languages, if I'm not mistaken. I might, yeah. Um, it's tipped to be doing really, really well in the box office. So, I mean, the list, we, we've we actually spoken to the social media team and we're going to send, um, basically post a list of all the theaters in LA and all the different cities that it's going to be showing on, but it's going to be fully accessible for everyone. And we're so, so happy to, it started from last night. And so we're so happy to, um, see the audience's reaction. So, Dave, you have to go in LA to it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're moviegoers every single week. Can't wait. Oh my god, I can't wait. Two thousand languages for a low-budget film. Wow. Oh, it's in. It's. I think it's in fifteen different languages in two thousand cinemas. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So, my last question, Dave has a caregiving question. Go ahead, Dave. So I'm I'm a caregiver to my wife. I believe everyone is either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver one day. And it happened to me 27 years ago. My wife lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side from a stroke. And I made a lot of mistakes. And it's a tough, tough job. 30% of caregivers die before their loved ones do. And many more get sicker than the ones they care for, eventually need a caregiver of their own. So I became Dave the Caregiver's Caregiver and now host uh, wellness retreats in Acapulco. I've spoken on television 57 times about this topic, uh, preventing your loved one's illness or disease from killing you, et cetera. How has caregiving uh, touched your life, Sarah? Oh, that's so beautiful, Dave. Um, that just, it's so, it's so crazy because in a lot of ways, I was just, as you were talking, I, I was not naturally, I was talking, thinking about the film and the struggle between Sarah and David and the conversations we were having last night with Nicholas. Um, 
the beauty of what you're doing i think we 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 basically come into this life like different planets we sort of clash into each other and we're supposed to fulfill each other not make each other necessarily happy but love each other and fulfill each other and the wonderful thing about caregiving is that commitment to love and respect and ultimately it not being about having the perfect partner perfect everything perfect life perfect circumstances but devoting yourself to someone that you believe is the love of your life and it's so so incredibly wonderful i mean i sadly i i lost my grandmother to alzheimer's and Sorry. and i didn't even manage to go back to see her and be at her funeral but for years um I remember just watching this uh, this this person that was um, everything to me just uh, slip away, and sadly, um, she couldn't remember anyone. But she could only remember she would call my cousins um, after me. She would call them Sara, and um, it, it's 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 one of those beautiful things that you kind of you see the ephemeral nature of life and love and um regardless it's 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 a beautiful and brave thing dave what you're doing it's it's people like small people like us wouldn't be able to live up to live up <laughs> oh, to you but <laughs> um i i we do I, what I, we have to do i completely understand but i'm also in awe and inspired by that but that's how oh, it affected my life i watched the most important woman in my life um oh. go through that and it was it was it was hard Absolutely. Well, I have a website now, caregiverdave.com. Anyone who can uh, want to have a support group, you know, you need support, you need uh, respite, you need uh, vacations. So you can look us up at caregiverdave.com. It's a pleasure talking to you. All right. And Sarah, we appreciate it. Where social media can people follow you and find you? I'm uh, I'm on Instagram. I know I have to have a Twitter, but I think Instagram has been cumbersome enough. But um, my name is Sarah Sayed on it. Um, I'm I'm very currently I'm I was a human rights lawyer before I I became an actor. So I'm very I do a lot of humanitarian and political stuff okay, <laughs> um, for Iran. So that there might be a bit shocked, but I'll start posting film stuff soon. All right. Well, we appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Again. Thank All right. you. All right. Thank Take you care. so much. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi everyone. And welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley show and growing older with enthusiasm with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Dr. Ron, how are you? What's going on? Doing great. Happy to see you. Looking forward to our conversation with Paul today. Absolutely. And my get our guest today is very exciting is a best-selling author of the hollow man series who's come up with an idea to start a publishing company for older adults, really serving the older adult population because a lot of them want to write books, have stories and different things. And he knows the right marketing. As you look up Paul Hollis, you'll see it end the Hollow Man series. Paul, thanks for stopping by Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Hello, All right. Doctor. So Dr. Ron is the great question because again, uh, he's a psychologist. So he'll start asking some questions. But Paul, story just to go dr ron in a little bit of his background that's amazing is he fought terrorism back in the 70s and his book the hollow man series is based on true stories but yet is a fiction book so he is like a jason Bourne in certain ways <laughs> well, well the opposite end of the spectrum from jason Bourne. oh <laughs> uh, really honored to be talking with you paul um, and but I guess we probably should be talking about what's happening now more so than in the 70s. And I guess I'm wondering, um, I mean, this seems like a really unique concept to have a publishing company that's devoted to a certain segment of the population that tends to be not thought about that much when it comes to publishing. Uh, and while I published my book in, in the eight, when I was uh, like 80 or 81, um, so I know I'm, I'm not unique in this regard, but how did you happen to hit upon this idea? Well, um, me being part of the older segment, I'm I'm one of the last baby boomers, I think. You know, but uh, um, it, it is that you know that we have not been uh, looked at, and, and I think that that all of us have a great story within ourselves, and and 
a lot of people want to tell it, but they don't know how to do it and they don't know what to do. And, and they need, they just need help either getting started or getting all the way to, to getting published. So, so I thought, well, this, this would be the good opportunity to, for us to uh, actually pay attention to, to the older generation uh, before we're all gone uh, specifically, but, but, but just, just to get those great stories out, you know, because I, I know, I have a lot of great stories, and and, uh, and and I know that everybody else does too, but they just don't maybe not realize that they have a good story. But but they're all good stories. They're every every story within a person, an older person, is worth telling. And so that's where we want to help you bring out bring out the, the, that uh, enthusiasm within yourself that you that you might have been overlooked for all, so many years and. You know, we're, we're retired. And so, you know, what else do we have to do? I mean, that that's how I got started is that when I retired, uh, uh, you know, I had, had all these stories and, and a doctor friend of mine said, why don't you write a book? And I said, I don't know. She says, what else are you going to do? You're retired. You know, so so uh, I said, yeah, great idea. So so I did that and I and I and I uh, learned a lot during the process of, of actually writing writing these stories down um, and, and, uh, and then getting, and then taking it through all the way to the publishing end. And I thought, you know, this is really not something that, that someone is not tech savvy and who is not uh, understanding of the world other than, other than, you know what, I've got a great story. So that's what our, our mission is, is to get, to get those great stories in, out of people and into the hands of readers who can enjoy them. All right, so let's let's deal with it in practical terms. Then let's say I've got a, a great story, or I think I've got a great story to tell. So uh, I guess there are two things that that might stop me. I would think one is I'm not sure whether it's a great story or whether anybody else besides uh, me or if my mother were still alive uh, would would be interested in reading it. Uh, Maybe my wife and kids. I'm not totally sure, uh, but you know, how, how do I determine whether it's it's something that's worth telling? And then I have no idea. You know, I, I, most most of us have not been working in the the publishing field or have been authors or things of that nature. Uh, so, number one, how do we sort out whether we've got a, a story worth telling? And then, if if we're convinced we do, how do how do we go about it? Well, the, the first part is that is that um, we 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 can actually help you get to get to the stories and understand them, and and once you start telling them, I guarantee you, you'll you'll kind of like, oh, and I got to tell you this, and I got when I tell you that, but but you can we can also get you um, uh, ghostwriter uh, uh, services if you want that sort of thing, but but I think that probably everyone has a has the um, the ability to write a story and so so we can help you evaluate that and to, to make it better through editing or through you know suggestions and that sort of thing so to get it down on on the paper so to speak right so so and then and then it's all about the editing and and uh, getting it to published and 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 then uh, 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 media sort of things like 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 what Neil does right so, so he's a a great uh, marketing person, you know, so there's, there's one person that we go to to for his help in the, in the marketing area to, uh, to, to make sure that, that those books are read by more than just our families. And when is the time that somebody comes to somebody like yourself? Do we have it written? Do we have it partially written? Do we have an idea in our head? When, when do you like to see somebody who, maybe a, a prospective author for you well um it it depends let, let me say that that's that's always my go-to answer it depends and and uh you know if you it, it really depends on when you need the help right so so that's where we start you know it's like here, here's what i need okay let's start there right and it's like then then we if you're if you're start, saying start in the middle of something then let well, maybe we back up a little bit and let's let's think about this first and this and this and this and we build up we just build that process with you with you and not without you you know not don't go behind the closed door and and sort of do our thing you know it's, it's always with with you as a as a as your client and and, the, and as a writer to to let you know what's going on be transparent about it and and so 
So, I mean, that's what I like. And so that's what I do for people, you know, to be, to be tra transparent and, and that's, that's where it's most helpful, but we, but it's wherever you want to start, wherever you have a question, we can, can find you an answer, you know, basically. Right. Well, it sounds like a little different process than what some of us have heard about. I mean, we've heard about authors that have gotten books rejected 15, 20, 30 times from different publishers. And eventually uh, some of them became really bestsellers, but, but it sounds like rejection is a very, uh, a very real part of the process. And, may not be the way that a lot of people want to spend their retirement is, is getting rejection slips. So I'm wondering what's yeah. different about, about Well, we, we won't, we won't live long enough to, to outlive our rejections. That's for sure. Um, even like uh, JK Rowling, you know, I mean, the, the Harry Potter things were, were rejected 42 times before she, she got there. So we want to, what I'd like to do is try to Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.